Our reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Please be seated. It is good to see you all this morning. I am thankful to see more and more and more and more faces. Uh, I am grateful that you are feeling well and are doing well. And I know that we will have a profitable study found in the book of Matthew. Uh, today, if you'd like to open your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, that's where we will begin. We live in, a, in an interesting place, in an interesting time. You and I live in the southeastern portion of the United States, which means we live, as many would consider, in the Bible Belt. Which means you and I know everything there is to know about this book we hold in our hands, right? No, no, but uh, we have been exposed to it all of our lives. Perhaps when you and I are exposed to it, maybe we get so comfortable with it that uh, we forget about those main players that are found within the text of this book. We can go out into our community today and ask so many people who are living around us, who is Jesus? And perhaps they give us all kinds of answers. Maybe some are in the Bible, perhaps many of them not so. It was back when I was being wrapped in swaddling clothes, as my mother would tell me, that there was a movement in the United States to have the man and not the plan. Anybody remember that? Don't raise your hand, you'll date yourself. If you do remember that, I'd like for you to remember at least one passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 8, especially around verse 36 through the end of the chapter. It is, by the way, impossible to teach Jesus without teaching his plan. As a matter of fact, when you and I read about the Ethiopian eunuch there found in Acts chapter 8, Philip will begin at that same point and preach unto him Jesus. And at some point in time, that eunuch says, Here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? How do he know about that if he didn't preach unto him baptism and the kingdom and the Christ? If he just preached about Jesus. So you can't separate that man from his plan of salvation for mankind. Some people will say he's just a man. That Jesus, the Christ Jesus of Nazareth, was just, uh, just a guy. And because he was such a good guy that people would base a religion on him and that the religion of Christianity is nothing more uh, than the concoction of some people's minds. Some people say he, he is a historical figure. He, he did have a part in shaping the way we look at Jerusalem, especially during those ancient days, but not much more than that. Some will even say he's a prophet. He is a prophet. 
but they would stop short at saying he is the very son of God. Others even say, I don't think he ever existed. What a shame. He never even existed? Some will look at him and view him through the eyes of Aladdin's lamp. You know Aladdin's lamp. You rub the side of it, the genie comes out, you get three wishes. That's how they view what Jesus is. Almost a, a spiritual ATM machine. Let me plug in the numbers that are right and he'll just pour money and whatever else I want on top of me. Uh, those are all the ways that mankind sees Jesus, or some of those ways, today. As you look at Matthew chapter 16, I'd like for us to look at the questions asked to Jesus or asked to the disciples and see if we can answer those questions once again. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus is coming across the, into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, what are men saying about me here in Philippi? What are they saying or who are they saying I am around this area? And so they begin to li list off a laundry list of names. Some say you're Isaiah or that you're Jeremiah or, or, or some other prophet. Then he asks a very important question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And, G and Simon Peter would answer and say, you're the Christ the son of the living God. Jesus would go on to say, Blessed are thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will, uh, I will grant unto you the keys of the kingdom, and the things that you will loose on earth will have already been uh, loosed in heaven, and the things that you will bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. What an interesting prologue you and I look at today as, as we look at the views of who Jesus is. Jesus the Christ revealed himself so many times to these men and it is written so many times within this Bible you and I would be foolish and blind to say we couldn't tell who Jesus is. Jesus revealed himself as the son by the very will of God and even through the voice of Peter on that first day in Acts chapter 2, as he would say, do you not know Jesus, the one who, who proved himself with signs and miracles and wonders? Do you not know him? You know, the one that you took and with wicked hands you crucified and slain, you know, 50 days ago. Now we've brought that thing full circle. Let's take a moment today and examine the question exactly who is Jesus. Now, as we begin, we have to look at the prophecies of his life. Within the Old Testament, there are some 300 or so prophecies. I need to keep that close to me. Some 300 or so prophecies of Jesus' life. And, and as we look at those, I, I, would, I would contend this statement. Without God providing the prophecies of Jesus the Christ, we wouldn't know that he ever came. We wouldn't know that he was here. We wouldn't know what he was doing or why he was doing those things without those prophecies. And it's necessary that the Christ who is coming hit all of these prophecies just right so that we can exclude him from any other person. Look in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. This particular verse found in Genesis is known as the proto-evangelic. That is, this is the first mention of the gospel plan of salvation, at least in, in a glimpse form, that God has for mankind. 
Here you're going to see Jesus in a battle with one that he is going to crush. Jesus will crush this one's head. And that that one will put a small little stone bruise on Jesus' heel. Now, how many of you like to live in 2020? Not, not virus 2020, but in the, in the age of 2020. By, by that, I mean, how many of you wear shoes? I like wearing shoes. As a matter of fact, I put on shoes when I wake up. And I take my shoes off when I go to bed because I, I live in 2020 in America and I have shoes. I don't, <clears throat> I don't like when my feet get bruises. They hurt and it hurts to walk. I know I have a lovely bride who calls me tenderfoot and that's all right, but I have shoes. I don't like when my feet get a bruise and yet God describes the, the wounds uh, of Calvary uh, to, to Jesus the Christ as a, as a stone bruise on his, on his heel. And he describes the victory in Calvary as a crushing blow to the evil one's head. Can you imagine that? Matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 4, we have a reiteration of when Jesus is born and why he is born. In Galatians chapter 4, you'll read this, but in the fullness of time. Stop right there. That is, when God's plan went as far as it was supposed to go, at God's time in God's way was a, was a, a Savior made of a woman underneath the law. Verse 5, to redeem us unto him as sons. Brother and sister, as you know, we have the right to stand before God as his children because of our brother Jesus the Christ. Because of his life and his prophecy of his life, we have an opportunity to stand before God justified. You look at the idea of being born of a woman and you think, oh, well, everybody's born of a woman, aren't they? Well, I need you to notice, too, in this idea of Genesis chapter 3, 15, that Jesus is going to be born of the seed of woman. That is a very interesting and critical piece of scientific history found right here. You and I know something as we deal with animals and people, we know something about the, the reproductive system. We know that eggs are found within the woman and seed is found within the man. And yet in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I guess Moses just got it wrong when he said the seed of woman. Oh no, Moses got it exactly right. Notice what he says there. Not only is it going to be a woman, it's going to be just a woman. There's not going to be any earthly father. In uh, Matthew chapter 1, the angel will tell uh, Mary that the thing that is conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Ghost. Now we have an idea. We're starting to see the prophecies of his life. She's, he's going to be born to a virgin, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 7 will write, he's going to be born to the virgin. Not just anyone, the one exclusively that I have picked out. By the way, this is about oh, 720 or 30 years before she's born. Not before he is born, before she is born. He's going to be born to the virgin. You find that in, in Matthew chapter 1. 
You find out his birthplace in Micah chapter 5 and, and verse number 2, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Euphrata. And in Matthew chapter 2, you'll find that uh, Joseph and Mary had to go to, to Bethlehem to, to register in the census. Imagine that. Isn't that interesting? Psalm 49, we find out that he's going to be betrayed. Not just by anyone, but by one of his own. And, and we associate the betrayal with Judas, rightly so. But this was not the only time Satan tried to get into the group and betray Jesus and turn on Jesus. You recall, as Simon stands up and says, we're not going to let you go there. Jesus would say to him, get thee behind me, Satan. That's right, get thee behind me, Satan. Don't stand in my way of doing what God's will would be. Every opportunity that Satan had, he tried to wiggle his way into that group. He tried to have Jesus betrayed as, as much as possible. That betrayal is interesting in Zechariah chapter number uh, 11, verses 12 and 13. You and I see the, the cost. How much did it cost to put Jesus on that cross? Uh, we see in Zechariah, it's 30 pieces of silver. We also find out that's uh, the, the same amount as a slave's uh, payment. The, the cost, really, to put Jesus on the cross was about 15 bucks. That's what he was betrayed for. If this were 20 years ago, I'd tell you that's about the price of a CD. You don't even know what CDs are anymore, do you? They used to have music on them. It's about the price of a ticket to go to see a movie. 15 bucks. We've put 15 bucks in our car in gas this week, haven't you? That's how much the price of the head of Jesus was. $15. These prophecies are not without merit. These are not things that God would put in the Bible just to take up space before he got to Matthew to the good stuff. This is pointing the nation of Israel and as we look back is proving to us that the Messiah is coming for them, has come for us, and this is what he's going to do. And so you and I need to pay specific attention to the prophecies of his life when we look at the question, who is Jesus? And notice this, who is Jesus? Look at the practice of his ministry. As he begins in Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 17, he goes out into the, to the, to the area there and he begins to preach repentance unto them for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The prophecy or the, the practice of his ministry was to preach repentance. Now all of this begins about uh, 30 years at age 30 or so. Um, 30 to about 33, we have an opportunity to see as he uh, practices this ministry. You know what I'd like to know? What he was doing when he was 10 or 20. We don't have the privilege of that information found with, within the, the Bible itself. We have an occasion when he was born, we have an occasion when he was 12, and then we pick up with his life at 30. I'd like to know what he was doing those other times. Am I, am I the only one in that? 
All right, I have found out the way to figure that out. Are you ready? If you have a pen and paper, write this down. Follow him, live faithfully, die faithfully unto him, and ask him when you get there. That's that's the only way I have figured out that we're going to find out what happened to him as as a youngster. But you and I began, we, we read of his, his ministry, and we read about him preaching repentance. What does that mean? That means that the people he's preaching to, those Jews especially, they're going to have to change what they're doing. That's the word repentance. You see, they at one point had that law, and at one point were following that, but now they've deviated from it. And now they think this is the path they should be going on, and all along this is the path of truth and righteousness. They've deviated far enough from it where this path looks just like that path. And he said, you're going to have to repent and come back to God in order to be faithful unto him. In Matthew chapter 4 through Matthew chapter 7, we find out that not only is he practicing a ministry that preaches repentance, he's practicing a ministry that pleases God. It's possible, I guess, for people to preach different things for different reasons. I read in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 especially that, that some around that Corinthian area were, were preaching uh, Jesus the Christ for profit, even though they were preaching it uh, as truth. They were preaching it to see how much money they could make off of that thing. If you were to gather all of the sound gospel preachers within our area and were to have a panel and were to ask them, one question, and that question be, why do you preach the gospel? It might be the fact that you hear, I, I want to preach that to save those who are lost. And, and that's a good reason. Or maybe you'll hear them say, I want to preach that to keep those saved who are saved. And that's a good reason. Or to educate this. or to. It all boils down to this. Those who are faithfully preaching God's word are preaching it to please God. We follow the very pattern of Jesus the Christ who preached the message of hope to please God. I heard a preacher one time say this, God only had one son and he was a preacher. I like that. My mother only had one son. He's a preacher. We look at the practice of Jesus' ministry. We see him preaching repentance. We see him pleasing God. In, verse, in chapter, or Matthew chapter 16, we see him Uh, promising a church. That church that he's going to to, uh, establish on the foundation of what Peter said. The foundation of the church is not Peter. John chapter, or rather Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus will start there and say, thou art Peter, whose name in the Greek would mean something like uh, small rocks or silt on the bottom of of a, a lake or a river that kind of gets pushed downstream. You know, you get enough of that, eventually it clogs everything up. Not those small rocks and silt, that would be Peter, but upon this Petros, upon this cliff face, upon this gigantic rock. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the statement made just a few verses earlier when Simon Peter looked at him and said, Thou art the Christ the son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. If that's not true, none of this is true. What are we doing? We're wasting our time. And yet that is the fact, and that is the foundation of the church, that Jesus is the son of God, 
and that he offers salvation through his blood. We see that promised church where Jesus says, and I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. See that singular? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See that singular? You know how many churches there are today? Some might say 7,000. Some might say 5,000. I'm going to contend with you there's one. There's only been one. You can call yourself a car and sit in a garage. That doesn't make it true. There's one church. There's always been one church. And you and I must be following that pattern of that one church. In his practice of ministry, he purchased us from our sin. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save those that are lost. Aren't you glad Jesus saved you from you? How many of you, let's, let's see a show of hands. How many of you ever tried to do things your way in your life? How'd that work out? Mm-hmm. I've messed my life up a bunch. It seems like everything that I choose that I want to do is not the right thing to do. Seems like I am there. I'm always spinning my wheels and I'm stuck in the mud. Yes, because you're trying to do what you want to do. He purchased me from me so I don't have to live my life in sin. He came to seek and to save those that were lost. <clears throat> he didn't come to seek and save those that were saved. Why? Because they're already saved. When he practiced his ministry, he proclaimed his deity. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John writes this, Truly, many other signs did Jesus in front of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through his name. Everything he preached, everything he did, everything he practiced in his life was to proclaim his deity and was to purchase us from sin, was to, to promote that church and to please God and to have us understand that we need to repent. Now notice this. If I look at Jesus and I say, who is Jesus? I look at the Old Testament prophecies. I look at his life. I, I have to look at the purpose of his death. His death and his burial are historical facts. Uh, Josephus and Eusebius and all those men here with uh, funny names from the, the Jewish society and Roman society would, would write about this one Jesus of Nazareth and write about him dying by the means of crucifixion. And so his death is a, is a historical fact. The biblical fact goes a little further. The biblical fact goes from not only the death and the burial of his life, but also into the resurrection. Turn over, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. And a verse, we'll start with verse number 6. For when you were that were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's you and me. For scarcely a righteous man, one would die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we would be profitable for the kingdom, in that while we would be the best thing going, in that while we would be the greatest asset to God he could ever have. Is that what yours says? In that while we were enemies of the state of God, in that while we were thumbing our nose at God, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ also died for us. You know, those men 
who stretched out his hands and nailed him to that cross. You know, Jesus the Christ died for them. You know, those men who opened up his back and beat him relentlessly, Christ died for them. Do you know the one who lived in rebellion and didn't want to do what he said? That Christ died for me? We look at his resurrection and we have to understand that that's a fact. We can simply look at it through the means of the legal system that was then and the legal system that is now. You and I see in Mark chapter uh, 16 and Matthew chapter 28 and Luke chapter 24. We can see it in Acts chapter 2. Um, one of the most uh, compelling places is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses or so. Here's what you're going to see. If my calculations are correct, and they could be bad off, but if they are correct, by means of the legal world then and the legal world now, there were 523 eyewitnesses of Jesus from the time he rose out of that grave to the 40 days of his ascension. Is that enough? What if Jesus was on trial and we marched off 523? Would that be compelling just to see that number? 523 people saw him alive after everyone saw him die. So what? What does that have to do with me, preacher? I'm glad you asked that. Keep your Bible open to Romans, but turn over one chapter. Romans chapter 6. Here's the problem in Rome. Rome understands, or the church in Rome understands that... Um, a man receives grace from God to cover his sin and to follow after his will, just as the Bible would teach. And so those men in Rome and those women in the church of Rome say, if I receive grace from God for sinning, maybe I should sin more so that I could get extra grace. Yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds like a good plan, huh? You just get grace all, thrown all over you and you get to live and, and act however you want to. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Let's put this in, in ways that you and I understand. My grandmother passed from this life into eternity in November. Was it November of last year? A year before last. She doesn't live in this world. She's dead to this world. As much as I wish she would come back, and I wish she would make some biscuits or some pickles or something, she's dead to this world. She's not coming back. How are we that are dead to sin, how can we live any longer therein? Because realistically, we're not dead to sin. We take vacations from it. And maybe sometimes vacations back to it. What we find ourselves is not being dead to sin as we should be. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the, the Son of God. 
John chapter 1, verse number 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word dwelt there means uh, to establish a tabernacle. Uh, and really what that means is you have an, uh, a God who is spiritual who comes to this earth and puts on a body. You have the incarnate God and they see him as the beloved of God full of grace and truth. He's the son of God. He is as John 3 verse 16 would say the only begotten son of God. That, that word's a fun word too. Monogenes is only, is translated in the King James as only begotten. And I don't know about you, but I don't use the term only begotten very much. That, that doesn't make a lot of uh, sense to me. What if I had to say this? God gave his completely unique son so that there will not be another one like him. Now we're starting to grasp the word. Starting to understand that he is so unique that he has the rarest blood type on earth. He's not O or A or whatever the rarest is. He is the only strand of blood that's going to save mankind. The one, that's it. Out of eight billion that are on our earth today and however many billions have lived throughout humanity, he is the only one who can redeem us all. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of this world. And sometimes we forget that. We think of Him being the Savior of those who are in this room. But He's the Savior of those who are outside of this room also. He's the Savior of those who are in our community who never even picked up a Bible to hear about Him. Do they not deserve it too? Are they not worth it? Absolutely they are. And He is... The only solution to sin. John chapter 14, Jesus would say of himself, verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now notice the qualifier he puts behind those things. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He is absolutely the one and only solution to sin. Have you been trying other ways? Have you been trying them to, to only understand that those ways don't work? Well, of course they don't work because it's not the solution. But, have I got great news for you today? You can have the solution to sin absolutely free. He's given his blood on that cross. All he would ask from you is that you would believe with all of your heart, that you would repent of your sin, Confess that Jesus is the Christ and be baptized into the family of God. While it is free, it's not cheap. It's going to cost you everything you have. Would you give God everything you have? He gave you a son. Friend, if you've done those things and, and yet you find yourself not living up to that standard, why not come back home? To a God that loves you, to a family that misses you? Why not come back home right now while we stand and sing for your encouragement? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you lost?